right, well, if you rang in the new year with us, you might remember Luke saying that there are three practices we are going to engage in in 2024. Those three practices being prayer, scripture, and community. Prayer, scripture, and community. This is not a fact. This is an opinion. In my opinion, there is one of those topics that elicits guilt and shame and, yeah, I know, I, I gotta do better. And that topic being prayer. We're going to talk about prayer this morning. Because as Luke said, we want to be a factory of spiritual formation. We have one priority this year. Our one priority is to be a spiritual formation institution. We don't prioritize institutional stability. What I mean by that is like whether or not Compass is around in 50 years is none of my business. What I care about is spiritual formation. Are we obsessed with, are we focusing on, are we putting our energy toward the, the prayer of Paul's heart until Christ is formed in us? And we said that spiritual formation has two parts. There are two parts to spiritual formation. Being with our rabbi and doing what our rabbi does. Being with our rabbi and doing what our rabbi does. I don't mean to get meta on you. Prayer is both of those things. Prayer is being with our rabbi. And prayer is doing what our rabbi does. Jesus had a vibrant and life-giving prayer life. Just in a, a, a quick sampling of Luke's gospel alone gives us so many examples of the prayer life that Jesus had. Luke tells us in Luke 5:16 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Jesus is a master storyteller. You may have a hard time recognizing some of that because we are modern and western and the Bible is ancient and eastern and sometimes we can hear Jesus telling stories and we're like, good one? Like, but he's a master storyteller and he tells a lot of stories about prayer. Part of the reason we miss the way to that is just the historical context. Uh, Jesus, if he had a website... It would say, sought after prayer instructor. More than once in the Gospels, we hear people coming up to Jesus and saying things like this. Teach us to pray. People knew this is a person with a vibrant prayer life. I want that. He was a sought after instructor on prayer. This may blow your brains, but Luke 6 tells us about the night before Jesus made an important decision. He stayed up and he prayed. Prayer is important for our spiritual formation because it is both being with our rabbi and it is doing what our rabbi does. Jesus prayed. And we have a lot of guilt and shame and don't feel like we know how to do it. Many of us, in my, again, professional opinion, but just an opinion, you ask people, hey, how's your prayer life? It's like, well, I could do more. It's going to head you off at the past there. Disappointing. <laughs> In research for this Sunday, I was looking at a, a preacher uh, teaching about prayer. 
And here's what he said. He said this. And again, I, he, I'm going to sound like a fuddy-duddy. But I just want you to know, fuddy-duddiness is not ageist. This preacher is younger than me. All right? And here's how he sounds. He says, you know what? Every Sunday in America, you all watch more football on one Sunday than you pray on an entire year. And until that number flips, your spiritual life is going to flop. I know, right? Especially since there's going to be a lot of people wearing gold and red and white today saying a lot of prayers. <laughs> and I, to correct Luke, I did not say that the Chiefs were going to lose. I just said those prayers are going to go unanswered. I would, oh, my hat is off to you, Chiefs fans, today. Good luck. But do you know what happened after I watched that video of that preacher saying, unless you flip that, you're going to fl flop. I didn't start praying. I started looking for other people. Well, certainly I pray more than that person. That's not a good motivator to pray. I'm deeply persuaded that the struggle around prayer has nothing to do with desire. It has nothing to do with desire. It's, that's a, I'm going to try to motivate you to pray. I don't think it's a motivation problem. I think our struggle to pray is largely rooted in bad beliefs we've picked up along the way about prayer. Beliefs like this preacher is espousing. Unless you do this, you're going to flop. This morning, I have one simple thing I'm trying to persuade you of. What if you pray more than you know? See, again, like I said, I struggled for many years as a pastor to talk about prayer. I think there can be this air that when you're on a stage talking about something, you've mastered it. Now you don't live in the real world with people. There's an old quote that says, the difference between a conjurer and a priest is that the priest is part of his audience. I am speaking as someone in need of instruction. I, too, am a, learn a disciple. I'm in the formation process with you. I'm not speaking as someone who has arrived. But my prayer life was a sense of like, Ugh. Like, I, I'm a type of person, like, I really sense God's presence, and I'm deeply aware of God's presence through Scripture. Like, I've fallen asleep in Bibles and woken up in the presence of God type of thing. And then I... I think about prayer, and I hear people talking about prayer, and I'm like, whoa, yeah, that's just not me, or I'm doing something wrong, and there's ah. a sense of guilt and shame. But I'm deeply persuaded that the struggle that we have around prayer is not a struggle of motivation, and it's not a struggle of desire. We've picked up on beliefs around the way that keep us, they're obstacles, they're hurdles to us having a satisfying, a joy-filled, life-giving prayer life. So many of us believe, we wrongly believe, that a fulfilling prayer life either is not attainable, if it is attainable, it's not sustainable, and it's not even maybe possible. It's not attainable. Like, yeah, it might not just not be for me. Like, maybe I'm not someone who prays. Like, maybe, yeah, if I need something, but like, as a regular rhythm, that's not attainable. I work 70 hours a week. Which want me to just like, would Jesus sneak away to a quiet place? Like, there is no place like that in my universe. I have a two-year-old. My two-year-old, the, the, the quiet place and shepherd, not in the same universe. 
How am I going to do this? This morning I want to empower you. I want you to feel deeply persuaded that you can have a satisfying, life-giving prayer life. What is prayer? Glad you asked. Prayer is not simply just talking to God. Not even simply just talking with God. This is how I'm defining prayer. Prayer is communicating and communing with God. Sometimes using words. It's both communicating, a back and forth, and communing, being in presence. Sometimes we use words. I had an experience in this room. I had an experience in this room where sometimes after services, we would be set up here and we would pray with people. We would pray with people like, hey, if God's moving you, there's men and women in the front. They'd love to pray with you. And one Sunday, a, a woman came bolting up. And she was sobbing, deeply emotional. And I'm like, I don't fully know what to say. And I couldn't really understand all she was saying. But in between her tears, I, I think what I could only make out was, my kids. My kids. And again, I, I, I want to burst the bubble that I always know what to say. If you still thought that at this point. I just was standing there like, ah, and I'm getting emotional too. She's emotional. And we just stood there for a few minutes and she left. And I was feeling really weird about that. And so I went to a mentor. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know how to pray with her. He said, no, no. You were. What? Yeah, you were praying with her. What? What if you and I pray more than we know? Would you be interested in growing in an awareness of a prayer life like that? We're going to look at a psalm that asks five questions. It asks five questions. We're looking at a prayer the psalmist is, is recording a prayer for us. And this prayer asks five questions that helps chip away at some of those false beliefs we've picked up along the way about prayer. Chips away, like, why do I pray? It doesn't change anything. Like, I pray for things all the time and nothing changes. This is really worth it. It, it, it asks questions. It challenges us. That's five questions. That psalm is Psalm 139. We're going to read it in just a moment. But before we read it, I don't want to lose you just yet. I've lost some of you. This psalm is a deeply intimate psalm. Lord, you search me and you know. You know my lying down and my rising up. How precious are your thoughts to me. It's very intimate. Like, wow, this is beautiful. And then in verse 19, the psalmist pulls an e-break. He's like, oh Lord, that you would crush the wicked. I'm like, yeah, what? What, 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 what did you say? I hate those who hate you. I'm like, oh, okay, we were having a good time. Well, this was all great, and then something happened. So if you read commentaries, what a lot of commentators do, some of them are like, uh, maybe this is a late edition. It wasn't originally part of this. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And we're going to look at it, and we can't answer every question about it. We're going to try to answer some of them. But as we read it, I want you to feel, it, it really is like the psalmist just is like, he ropes us in, and we're like, oh, this is great. And then he pulls the e-brake, like, Gah! I believe that's intentional 
Because so many times when it comes to like talking about prayer, some of our obstacles are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy for people who have time. Easy for a preacher. This psalm, though, was written in the context of pain. The psalmist has people who are harming him. He has people who are doing him harm. And in the midst of this, intimacy is where he turns. And I believe that's the window through which we experience this psalm. He's not just coming out of the Betty Ford Clinic. He just, oh, I just needed a month of me time. I had to be human-sized. So I just, you know, I've been in like a personal, like, uh, self-discovery rehab, and I wrote Psalm 139. It comes from a person in pain. And I believe that's meant to empower us. You and I really can have a vibrant prayer life. It's possible. If it's possible here, it might just be possible for us. So Psalm 139 is where we're going to be. Not 138. Not 140. But 139. We're going to ask five questions that are going to chip away at some of our beliefs. And our overarching idea is what if we pray more than we know? Psalm 139. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Yahweh, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Oh, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, still with you. If only God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them. My enemies, search me, God, 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. God, we want help. We want help. God, this psalm said a few times that you're here to help. God, we're going to put that to the test this morning. God, I pray that we would, we would chip away at some of these beliefs we have about prayer. And that we would start to feel that a rich communication, a rich communing, a life with you is possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You can have a seat. In the mid-90s, Princess Diana shocked the world. She might have been Lady Diana. I don't know. I don't keep up with British gossip because not my queen. Like, literally. I think it's weird to watch the weddings. Anyway, uh, it's like the mid-90s, and she shocked the world. There was a picture that just, like, it just sent the world into a frenzy, and it was recently on an episode of The Crown on Netflix. But Princess Diana went to an AIDS hospital... And there was a photograph of her hugging an AIDS patient. Those of you today may hear that. Those of us go, what's the big deal? This is just another celebrity. This is a photo op. Lame. Self-serving. But at the time, it was shocking. At the time, people didn't have a category for this. Why? Because this is coming out of the AIDS epidemic. And there were so many just bad ideas floating in the air about AIDS. Ideas like, ah, like literally, it's in the air. AIDS in the air. Don't be around people with AIDS. You'll get it. And here is the picture, the embodiment of just like chic, Vogue. I mean, she might be, she's definitely been on the cover of Vogue, right? Just like this culture hugging a person who has AIDS. And it shocked the world. We don't feel the shock of that. We have hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty. It's kind of like I... Confession time. I never really understood the Beatles. Like, I'm like, mm, it's fine, but it's just kind of boring. Because I wasn't around when they came on Ed Sullivan. It's like, there's nothing like this. This is crazy. This is wild. We lose the shock of things when they're new. That's prayer. Look, I've, prayer is something that we just assume. I've been with atheists in hospital rooms, and I'm like, can I pray? And they're like, yeah, 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 please, please. I'm like, that creates a lot of questions in me, but I'm not going to worry about it. We're going to pray. We all kind of take prayer for granted. But the psalm that we just read, there's nothing like it in antiquity. Israel's neighbors, the, the ancient Near East, that's the culture that Israel was ne- nestled in. Places like Mesopotamia and Babylon. Babylonians, Mesopotamians, we have a lot of their prayers written down and they sound nothing like what we just read. A Babylonian god, this is my imagination of him, his name is Marduk. We have prayers to Marduk and those prayers sound like this. Oh Marduk, hey, hello, you smell so good. Like you're just like the best smelling god ever. Like your smell fills a room and it's really good. Oh and you're handsome. You're so handsome. We love you. Please don't kill me. Like, please, 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 like, make my crops grow. There was not a relationship of intimacy. There also was no guarantee that the gods would hear you. So you had to do wild and crazy things like omens and burn incense and kill things. Like, you like this. We'll do it so you hear us. The God of the Old Testament is radically different. 
We just read a psalm that says this, You have searched me and you know me. You perceive when I sit and when I rise. That's called a merism in Hebrew when we do the opposites. When I sit, when I rise. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, and everything in between. We have one of those in English. It's called high and low, right? We searched high and low for you. What does that mean? Everywhere. We searched everywhere for you. God cares about when you sit and when you rise. You know who doesn't? Anybody else in your life. Like just, if you want to test this, try telling someone your dream last night. Like, hey, I had the weirdest dream. Someone goes, uh-huh. Okay, well first, you know, like, mm-hmm. What does the Bible say though about God? You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from far. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Intimacy. The question that this starts to, to chip away at. If this, God really, if this God really does think about us, what if prayer, what if we pray when we imagine God studying our face? What? You may ask. Studying our face. Why would we do that? Can we even do that? Can we imagine God studying our face? Well, we can if we think God studies people. If the answer to the question of does God study people is no, hey, can we imagine God studying our face? Well, okay, well, does God study people? No. Okay, well, I would not then imagine God studying your face. Because if there are people who you have in your life who are not relationally attentive, you may notice they have a hard time looking at you in the face. There's an intimacy in eye contact. There's an intimacy in really seeing someone. Listen to the intimacy of the psalm. You've searched me and you know you know when I sit down, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. That word perceive means study. God studies you. Think about how crazy it is. I don't think you get it. Just Google James Webb Jupiter. The James Webb Telescope has been taking high-resolution pictures of Jupiter. They will blow your brains away with what that planet really looks like. It's beautiful. We were watching uh, this guy on social media who has like a crazy telescope, which I have no idea how it's legal for people to own these things, but he has this crazy telescope and he was looking at the sun and he saw a solar tornado. Do you know what a solar tornado on the sun is? It's basically just fire, like whipping around. The solar tornado was 13 Earths tall. We don't even have, we can't even comprehend that. I was talking about this this week with somebody who is a math nerd, they love numbers. What's the biggest number you can think of? 15? <laughs> I said a Google. Google is a number. I think a Google is like 10 with, to the 100th power. I think. I don't know. I went to seminary. We don't have to know these things. A Googleplex is that with a Google on to the Google power. There is a video of these math nerds counting by ma massive numbers. So they're counting and they're like, a million, 500 million, a billion. They count like that for nine minutes and they get to a Googleplex. The video is nine hours long. Math is complex. Counting, though, is not. And look at how crazy it is. The God who makes a solar tornado, 13 Earths 
Paul. The God who is in control, who knows all those numbers, studies us. Have you ever watched a movie with somebody who's already seen it? Like, oh yeah, I know that. that's what happens. They're bad. Watch out for them. They're the bad guy. Plot twist. It's not ancient. It takes place in the 80s. What? God knows us. He creates us. And yet that's not his posture toward us. He studies us. And what happens to the psalmist? He says this in verse 6. Such knowledge is too much. What? It's too wonderful. I can't contain it. And so prayer, what if prayer is not just simply rattling off, off a lift, but what if it's this intimacy with that God, that creator God? It's imagining him studying our faith. You know my thoughts, God. You, you, you know me. You see me and you know four words on my mouth. You know it. So I'm, I know you can see my face right now. I know that preacher told me to do this. I'm doing it. It feels really awkward. You can see me kind of wincing. What do you think about that? That's prayer. What if prayer is just as simple as that? That intimacy. That was foreign in the ancient Near East. Question number two, if that's true. If it's true that prayer is communicating and communing with God. And we can experience that by trusting what the Bible says and then imagining, okay, God, you say you study me. I'm, what does that look like? I'm just here and I'm open and available to the fact that you might be studying me. What if we pray more than we know? What if we pray more than we know? Look with me at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? This does not sound like someone who's trying to be in God's presence. Where can I flee from your presence? Sounds a lot like the, the prophet Jonah. He's like, like, go to Nineveh. He's like, I'm out of here. In Hebrew, Hebrew poetry works like this. This is part of verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee, escape from your face? Is literally what the word presence is. The Hebrew word for presence is face. Hebrew poets are famous for this thing called parallelism. What happens in parallelism is they will say a line and then they'll repeat it. It sounds very similar. So, so like we just read, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And everyone just kind of for a long time just assumed, oh yeah, that's how Hebrew poetry works. It's just redundant. They kind of, they just take a truth and they're kind of circling around it. Until Robert Alter. Robert Alter is a Hebrew scholar at UC Berkeley. And Robert Alter made this amazing observation. Ah, no, 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 that's actually not what's happening here. Oftentimes, when in Hebrew poetry we have a truth that's said, it gets cranked to 11 in the next verse. So listen, listen again. Listen to this. Where can I go? Right? That could just mean like this. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here. Look at the next line, though. Where can I flee? Hear how that's like cranked up? Where can I go from, from who? From your spirit. How do we crank that up? Where can I flee from your face, your presence? The psalmist is going on to say, your presence is here, it's there. It's, it's up in the heavens, it's down in hell. It's, you're just everywhere. I can't get away from you. This is crazy. What about this? What if God's presence doesn't depend on our awareness of his presence? What if God is here helping me? And what if God is here helping you whether we feel it or not. 
What if God is at that place where you don't want anyone to see you? What if God is with you when that coworker is just like, oh, they caught me at the water cooler. Oh, I just want to get all this on me. What if he's with you there? Well, that would mean that our awareness of his presence does not create his presence. Our awareness of God's presence does not create his presence. The beautiful thing about that is that that means we may pray way more than we know. We're constantly with him. We're always in his presence. Always. We have an encouraging you to get involved in a connection group. Our hope is that by mid-spring, 75% of Compass Church is involved in a connection group. We believe that connection groups are how we're known, it's how we share our stories. I was introduced to a practice that can really help us pray, especially in community, in connection. One of the things we can do in connection groups, what happens that we start our connection groups is people go around sharing their story. So I want to introduce a practice to you. It's just, it's just these simple words. Lord, hear our prayer. Here's what it could look like. Some of your connection groups sharing. Man, I went and visited my mother-in-law. She's got cancer. Man, it's really sad. I don't really know what to do with that. My father-in-law, he's been a huge jerk. I don't really like being around him. I don't know what to do. Wow. Then you reply, Lord, hear our prayer. Hey, wait, wait, wait. When did we pray? Nobody like bow and we didn't do that. No, 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 no. He's here. He's with us. He's here with us with resources. Like, look, at, look at what the psalmist says in verse 9. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea. Verse 10, even there your hand guides me. Your right hand holds me fast. Guiding, preserving. In the context of running away. What if in the context of community, he's guiding and preserving? And we can just say, Lord, hear our prayer. We want to just highlight attention and awareness of that. What if you pray more than you know? Part of the reason I think we pray more than we know is because this, this beautiful thing the psalmist says in this verse, where can I go from your spirit, your presence? The New Testament, that fills it out more and that we're a temple. A temple is where God lives. The, the temple of the spirit of God. God lives in us. If God lives in us, that may, that may you know, lead us to our next question. Is our mind the source of all our thoughts? Is our mind the source of all our thoughts? Are all my thoughts my thoughts? If the answer, even if the answer is no. No, no, no. If the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, all your thoughts are your thoughts. Okay, you have to, you have to deal with this verse. Look with me at verse 17. Psalm 139, 17. How precious to me are your words, God? How precious to me is your word that you wrote down? No. How precious to me are your thoughts? That's intimacy. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us this. We have the mind of Christ. My wife and I, we don't have an old marriage. Like our marriage is like a teenager. And as we are together longer, we develop these really cool superpowers. So we're, we can go to like a party and we're communicating though we're like across the room. Like we're looking at each other and it's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe he just said that. Like, yeah, that's going to be a totally awkward ride home for him. Uh, we didn't bring anything and everyone else brought something. 
don't, don't notice. Like, just don't, just pretend you don't notice and it'll be fine. Oh, I think someone sees us talking to each other. Okay. We're different minds, and we can get on the same wavelength and communicate. Well, what happens when we have the mind of Christ? How can the psalmist say, your thoughts are wonderful, are beautiful to me, God? This is deep intimacy. What if all your thoughts aren't all your thoughts? What if God is leading and you're just not aware? I have this thing on my phone. Because again, I forgot to get this to the tech team. But I was in a class, and like, definitely like a do not record class. So this is exciting. Uh, but it was a class with, uh, so Dallas Willard, he thinks a lot about spiritual formation. He's passed away. He was a philosopher at USC. And he, uh, yeah, was deeply committed. Like the church needs to just obsess over this idea of spiritual formation. So I was in a class with one of his disciples. Someone that went to USC to get a degree in philosophy just to be with Dallas. And, I, and in one of the classes one day, they just started sharing, like, Dallas is dying. He just started saying all these things. And I'm like, whoa! And so I got out my phone and started recording some of them. And I just happened to get it at one of those amazing times. And I hope you can hear it. I'll restate it if you don't. I said, what's your relationship with God like? And he said, uh, he said that his relationship with God was a lot like an old marriage. And I wasn't impressed. I thought an old marriage. But, but I never, I, I, now, I, now it's, I, I think, oh, no, that sounds beautiful. But, but I remember he said, he said, uh, he, said it, it's, he said, you know, in, in, a, in an old marriage, there's some moments of ecstasy. There's some moments of real close intimacy, and it really feels. He's like, but those don't happen very often anymore. But there's this constant sense of loving companionship. I don't know if you could hear that. What he said was this: My relationship with God is like an old marriage. You know, there's there's ecstasy, there's some ecstasy, but what it really is is this constant sense of loving presence. So many of us, we don't feel like God is there, sometimes because we're chasing an experience. But God, if you're there, I, I just want to see, like, can you make that person fall down? And can you make me feel, like, euphoria? Oh, I didn't. Okay. But what if it's just about growing an awareness that he is with us? He's with us to resource us. He's studying our face. We have the mind. Not all our thoughts are all th our thoughts. We pray more than we think. We have an old marriage with God. He's with us. We're together in the room. We're starting to sense each other. That's how Mother Teresa described her prayer life too. It's just like an old marriage. One of the beautiful things that happens when you've been with someone long enough is that you start to feel what that person feels. And this is where we have to turn to the uncomfortable part of our passage. Right? We're talking about intimacy. We're talking about knowing God. That he sees us. He's chasing after us. He's resourcing us. He's guiding us. He's sustaining us. And then we get verse 19. If only God, you'd slay the wicked. And we're like, I can't say everything that needs to be said about this passage. Let me say this though. Rodney Stark has a book about the history of Christianity where he, I think, makes a pretty substantial case that Christians have always been participants in nonviolence. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. So as followers of Jesus, we're not like, yeah, who can we go beat up? We're learning to serve, serve our enemies. So well, how do we make sense of this passage? Here's how I think we make sense of this. 
what happens when we, we ask God how he feels? Well, Psalm 139 tells us this, that love shares pain. Listen to how David is talking. He says this in verse 20. They speak evil. They speak of you with evil intent. And adversaries misuse your name. When we love someone, we feel what they feel. We share pain. Prayer is simply asking God, how do you feel about this? Can I feel like that? Uh, I forget her last name, but Dr. Maureen, perhaps Driver, she's a theologian and an attachment theory specialist. It's like a winning combination in my book. She talks about if our behavior doesn't affect God's emotion, it's not a real relationship. What does that mean? Paul, in the book of Ephesians, says we can grieve the Spirit. God feels deeply. And in prayer, when we open ourselves up to prayer, we say, God, what do you feel? I love you. I want to be with my rabbi. I want to do it. I want to feel what you feel. Love feels pain. Look, and it creates anxiety for David too. Look at, look at it again in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. There's a beautiful vulnerability here. Because I think that's the second half of this verse. Is that David is also willing to receive correction. Right? He prays this like kind of wild prayer. Like, let's, let's go kill the wicked. And he says this, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is an offensive way in me. What David is inviting us to ask is, what happens when we ask God what he wants? Attachment can change our trajectory. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a little offensive. It's rude. I wish it wasn't rude. I have no way. I just, it is what it is. I'm going to say it. And you can think it's rude. It is a little rude. I don't really like the Midwest. I feel like it was designed for people who hate the outdoors. Like it's freezing. And they're like, oh, whew, don't worry. Spring's coming. And spring's like a day. And then boom, it's really hot. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait for winter. And they're like, oh wait, never mind. But why do I live in the Midwest? Because I fell in love with a Midwest girl. And if living here means getting her, whoo, I will bear that cross. See, people, people who are like, oh man, love is really oppressive. I don't know if they've ever really been in love. Love can change the trajectory of your life. You will do things that you're like, I would have never imagined myself doing this. And now I think it's beautiful because of love. I, Amy and I had kids later, and I remember like a lot of our friends started having kids, and they're like, oh, diapers. I'm like, gross. You people are gross. It's just gross. I don't know what to tell you. That's poop. You're, that's gross. And then like I had kids. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. I love you. Because love changes your trajectory. And in prayer, we're just saying, God, what do you want? I want to be with you. So what do you want? I, uh, I grew up, I grew up in a house where, I, you know, I, I knew my parents loved me, but I grew up in a, in a highly chaotic house. Like, for example, I didn't know I was from a blended family till high school. So, uh, yeah, I, I knew what blended families were. I just, and I, I knew, like, oh, we dropped Mike off every other weekend to his mom's house. But I didn't know that that was called blended family. I didn't know that. Was, no one talk, we didn't talk about these things. 
And so I'm in a high school sociology class, and they're like, how many of you students in here are from a blended family? And I'm looking around like, oh, wow, wow. And my teacher's like, Craig, raise your hand. I was like, why? So you're from a blended family. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not from a blended family. I just have two half-brothers and then a bunch of adopted people. Like, yeah, just raise your hand. And so there were, there were eight of us kids all together, and it was, it was a, a chaotic family. And I don't tell you this, any of this to blame my parents at all. I don't blame them. But as my parents get older, I've really been wrestling with, like, what am I going to say at my dad's funeral? What am I going to say? And it was like a source of tension for a long time. Because, again, in a chaotic environment, my dad worked a lot. My dad was a mechanic, son of a mechanic, and he, that's just what he knew. And he worked an awful lot. And my parents, God bless them, but they were like trying to save the world and raise eight kids. So part of the reason they had eight kids was because they adopted four. Part of the reason they could adopt so many kids was because they had foster care. And nobody ever really talked about that. We would just have, I was recently with someone who did foster care and they gave me this phrase like, oh yeah, foster care invites trauma into your house. I was like, oh my gosh, that's my childhood. I like was in people's homes where it was like, this boyfriend 10 minutes ago beat up that girlfriend and then you have their baby in their house. And I'm like eight and I'm like, what's going on? And they're just talking about it. I'm like sitting there, no idea. My parents took a baby home from the hospital that had spinal bifida. They took the baby home knowing the baby would die. Her name was Trinity. And nobody talked about that with me. And then one morning I come out to the kitchen and on the counter is a dead baby. And I was like, oh my gosh. No one talked about that after that. I grew up in this chaotic home. And if you were to ask me what I'm going to say at my dad's funeral, I'll say, you know, in that environment, did I know that my dad loved me? The answer is heck yes. Why? When I was in sixth grade... I, I have Crohn's disease, and when I was in the sixth grade, I had a flare-up. And I remember collapsing at recess and getting really sick, losing tons and tons of weight. Now, back then, they knew what Crohn's disease was. I'm not that old. But they just didn't know I had Crohn's disease. So I was on this mystery of like, ah, oh, we don't know what you have. And so like, doctors were like, maybe you have cancer, maybe you have Crohn's. We don't know. And so they hospitalized me. I was really, really skinny. I missed most of my sixth grade year. And they hospitalized me at Mass General. I don't, I don't know if you know this. I'm not from Massachusetts. I'm from New Hampshire, which is basically a suburb of Massachusetts anyway. But it's an hour drive. It's an hour drive. My dad and I had a rocky relationship at the time. I remember being really scared of him because I felt like he was really angry. And so I remember started standing up to him. We had wild fights. I remember I ran away from home once. Like, it was just like a really tumultuous time. But here I am in a hospital in a strange city. It's early in the morning, and I peek my eye open, and who's sitting in the, in the seat beside my dad. Mass, Mass General was an hour from my house. My dad had to be at work at 7. I pretended I didn't see him. I was mad at him. So I keep my eye closed. You know what happened the next day? Guess who was there? My dad. This time he brought balloons. And the next day. And the next day. If you were to ask me, did your dad love you? I'd say, heck yeah. Why do I know that? He gave me his presence. And he gave me his presence when I needed him the most. I don't know why bad things happen to good people. But I do know he's there. He is not absent. It takes work to see him. 
Just because we said we want to have a nice prayer life doesn't mean that magically appears. But I know he's here. He's helping me right now, and he's helping you right now. And when you leave this place, he's here. And the hope that we have is that that's never going to change. Jesus. Jesus, I pray for everyone in here right now, God. God, I pray that we would be aware that you lead and guide even when we are not aware. How precious are your thoughts to us, oh God. God, I pray that we would feel empowered to cry out to you and empowered because you show up with resources. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.